Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Friday, August 11th. Derek Van Riper here with Gear on this episode. We dig into some of the biggest news of the week, trying to find some waiver wire goodness as the weekend approaches. We got a few promotions, we got a few teams changing up their rotations. We got some guys working their way back from injuries. We have a, a Lodum favorite looking really good in a well, previously tough spot, at least, against the Tampa Bay Rays. So tons of ground to cover. We begin with a promotion in Seattle. Emerson Hancock has joined the Mariners rotation. This one was spoken into existence while we were recording Project <laughs> Prospect on Tuesday. It was like literally the the moment that Emerson Hancock's name was mentioned. We saw that tweet that he was actually going to come up and make his debut. It was five innings, one earned run, two hits, three Ks. Three walks and uh, an announcement that the Mariners may actually turn to a six-man rotation once Brian Wu comes off the IL with a forearm injury, or if Brian Wu comes off the IL with a forearm injury. But Al, we're always looking for pitching. Emerson Hancock, former first-rounder back in 2020. He's been a pitcher on the Keeper and Dynasty League radar for a long time. What do you think he brings to the table in redraft leagues? I definitely uh, bring something for 15 teamers. I think when you're looking at setting your bids this weekend, you know, take a look at the game log for Hancock before he got called up because the overall stats at Tacoma weren't that great. And even during a very good stretch right before he got called up, not a ton of strikeouts, but the walk rate came way down. And um, he was really effective. Uh, so he, he clearly earned that promotion. Uh, I think he's sort of borderline for 12 teamers, a, a guy that you could use based on the matchups. He certainly got a great home park. So I think that would certainly, uh, you know, benefit, uh, having him on the roster and being, being able to use him for, for home starts. Uh, but not, you know, not somebody that you would necessarily have to empty the remainder of your fab, uh, you know, is, uh, as small as that might be at this point in the season, uh, but uh, you know, make a definitely make a good faith offer. I think he's uh, he'll be useful. Yeah, it should be it should be an interesting week. Two turns on the road if he stays in that Mariners rotation. The first being at Kansas City on Monday, which well, why not? You would love to use him there. Uh, if you have to commit to both starts, you have to take a start in Houston for the second one. So I do think this trends more towards someone you'd want to use in a 15-team league as opposed to a 12. You look a little further down the road, he'll get the Royals again at home the week after a two-step. So there's some appeal here in a pretty wide range of formats, in part because the cost is low. And I think the other tricky thing, we've talked about this throughout the season, you know, with the double-A pre-tacked ball, and that was in the Southern League, if I remember correctly, that wasn't supposed to be used for the entire season. So you're changing the ball. The ball they were using at the beginning of the season is not what they were used to. There's so many moving parts for the pitchers that have had to deal with these conditions. I wonder if we'll see more than a few guys have better numbers at AAA and in the big leagues than they had at AA just because of unusual circumstances like that. Um, but I do think it's more of a a command and control first profile for Emerson Hancock. I think you're right to point out that low K rate, even when he's had a lot of success. You go back to the start of June during his time at double A, a 273 ERA, a 0.97 whip over 52 and two thirds innings. He was rolling along with a 50 to 10 strikeout to walk ratio during that span. So a lot was going right. And that included one real meltdown start 
on the 5th of July. He gave up nine runs in one and two-thirds innings. Without that, these numbers would be even better. So uh, a really nice turn for him after a, a disappointing first two months at the level. Yeah, and also, yeah, thank you for uh, yeah pointing out that was double A, not Tacoma. That's just a... Uh yeah, a lazy habit. They're, if they're coming up to Seattle, they're, they're just coming from Tacoma. But uh, he made the trip from Arkansas. But uh, so, yeah, that that's I think that it's important to keep the the, the tack ball in, uh, you know, in the context there of, of evaluating that that game log. But, yeah, he's had definitely had a few clunkers. But uh, overall, the, the skill set is one that, uh, again, doesn't make him a, a must add in every format, but should make him valuable uh, in, in a lot of leagues uh, for for rest of season. And and also with Brian Wu, I had read and again I don't know how, you know, how well this is actually going to pan out, but that he might actually have the minimum stay on the IL. So that would certainly affect everybody in the Mariners rotation if they do go to uh, a six man in, you know, a week, week and a half or so. Yeah, they're saying it's a minor forearm issue, so hopefully that is the case and it's a quick turnaround for Brian Wu. The other big Pitching development this week was the word that Shane McClanahan has likely suffered a season-ending injury, which opens up an opportunity in that Tampa Bay rotation. It's just not the way that we wanted someone to get an opportunity. Zach Littell, I think, gets stabilized by the absence of McClanahan, and Taj Bradley probably gets to come back sooner rather than later. Now, the actual plan around the upcoming schedule is still up in the air, as it tends to be with the Rays, but... They could go in the direction. It doesn't necessarily have to be Bradley right away. It could be someone like Cooper Criswell. They could throw other bulk relievers in there and just mix and match. Uh, but I'm curious in the more shallow formats where Zach Littell is still available. We're now three starts in. He's gone 10 Ks, one walk, a couple of wins in those three starts over 17 innings. Sub three ERA, pretty good whip. It's just a really low strikeout rate. Are you interested in Zach Littell knowing that this previously temporary opportunity to start looks like it's going to last for the rest of the season. Well, I, th- I think uh, I'm not that interested in adding him where he's available. Cause I think he's kind of, you know, maxed out his, his roster appeal. And it's like you said, the, uh, the, the strikeout rate. And one of the things with the Rays in the past where you had starters who were, you know, maybe at the back of the rotation or, uh, were bulk relievers or you know, swingman role, and they had some appeal because you figured they get some run support, you get a little help from the ballpark. But lately, the um, you know the Rays' offense is hasn't been what it was earlier in the season. So, and I think you alluded to that mm-hmm. at the top of the show. So uh, that's something to keep in, in to uh, you know keep in mind as well. That if you're using Latell, you're probably not getting the strikeouts, and you might not necessarily get a ton of innings at least for the next couple of weeks. And uh, and you can't necessarily count on a win, even if he does make it five innings. So I don't see a lot of upside there. Yeah, I was thinking about that Rays offense, and they have tumbled pretty hard after that fast start. Are they a team that we should be streaming against? I mean, look at what Matthew Libertor did to them on Thursday night. Maybe a little extra chip on his shoulder. It was the organization that traded him to St. Louis. But eight innings, seven Ks, no walks, just two hits, 15 swinging strikes. He was up nearly a tick on both the four-seamer and the sinker. Everything else in the arsenal was up even more than that. And he had a huge 50% called strike and whiff rate on his curveball. So Matthew Libertor really had everything working. 
how much of that was Libertor's stuff taking a step forward and how much of that was this Rays lineup being a bit lost here for the better part of two plus months now? Yeah, well, I was chalking it up to the latter just because what we've seen from Libertor so far with the Cardinals this year is that's just very much out of line with that performance. So I did chalk it up to the matchup and I was thinking a little bit earlier today, looking at some of the more recent Wobble rankings, you know, looking month of August, 14 days, you're not, not, we're talking probably samples that are too small to trust, but just kind of getting a sense of where, what does that landscape look like post trade deadline? And yeah, I, I think the Rays are a team that we can pick on now. And I think they are a team where we can maybe discount the importance of a good outing against. And on the other hand, earlier you made an allusion to the Royals and being a favorable matchup. And I I think, you know, when when it's all said, uh, I would agree with you with that. But they had the little winning streak, which, of course, now is well in the rearview mirror. But they're still scoring some runs. And you've got uh, a number of hitters. MJ Melendez has woken up in the second half. Uh, Felix Fermin has, has hit well. Uh, people who aren't catcher eligible are, are, are hitting well. Uh, Michael Massey, <laughs> of course, Bobby Witt. So uh, they're, they're not, I, I hesitate a little bit in terms of, is that an automatic stream or is that lined up a little bit more dangerous? And you look at the, the A's, the Marlins teams that, you know, in May were just slam dunk stream candidates. And it's a little bit more complicated now. Yeah, how much of a, a snapshot are you taking in season when you look at a, a team's form to determine matchups? And some of it is figuring out, was there a major injury, right? You think about when the Yankees didn't have Aaron Judge, they went from a team that you'd be very careful with, especially throwing your lower-end starters against them at Yankee Stadium, to one where you could take almost a waiver-wire starter in some instances and throw them out there against the lineup they were putting together. It wasn't just... The judge injury. It was also Anthony Rizzo, you know, before we realized that he was dealing with post-concussion symptoms and a few other players who were really underperforming. But do you go back two months, three months? April matters in some regard, but it doesn't matter as much as we've seen more recently, at least in in the way I look at this. And I just did a leaderboard for June 1st forward. So you're getting, you know, more than two months of information. That has the raise kind of in the league average range for WRC+. Plus. 101 is a team, 24% K rate. It's actually pretty high. 24% puts them inside the top 10 in a bad way. So you don't want to be in that position. So I, I would say the Rays are one of those teams that early in the year we were avoiding. I'm at least at the point, I'm not necessarily streaming against them with anybody, but I'm not afraid of throwing pitchers against them now that I would have been reluctant to throw against them back in May. That's a really good way to put it. Uh, yeah, uh, it's just that that perception for me too has has changed, and uh, you know I don't want to overstate. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, the A's. I, I I wouldn't have much hesitation to to stream a pitcher against the A's, but you just have to look at it a little bit more carefully. And it's um, you know same thing with the Royals. So all in all, I, I don't think that that landscape has changed too much. But I think the Rays are definitely one of the the teams that. Um, you know, that's changed a lot for, I would put, add the giants to that too. And I, it's kind of come full circle. Cause I remember the first week or two of the season, we had a conversation about streaming against the giants and you were all for it. And I wasn't so sure. And they actually hit pretty well the first couple of months, but I think the last month, month and a half, they're, they're right by the bottom 
And I think they're, especially when they're at home, uh, they're a very good team to stream against. Yeah, same leaderboard, just looking at team performance going back to June 1st. The Giants are 26th in WRC Plus as a team. They're hitting 229. They're striking out 23.9% of the time. I had a, a sad for me revelation on the Athletic Baseball show earlier today that the Brewers offense is actually a lot like the Giants offense. The main difference between those two teams from a real life perspective is that the Brewers have been a great run prevention team. Their defense is phenomenal. The Giants defense better than recent years, but not as good as the Brewers. But being being frustrated by watching those teams makes a lot more sense to me now seeing how statistically similar they are. Um, all of that's to say that I'm not afraid to throw mid-range starters against the Brewers. The park doesn't scare me that much. The lineup doesn't scare me that much. Uh, the Tigers are, are still in this cluster. The Giants, the Royals, even with their improvement, they're still more of a bottom five offense. They're just not atrocious anymore. Uh, <laughs> the Pirates are still pretty weak. The White Sox are, are watered down. The Rockies are still the easiest matchup, especially outside of Coors. They have a 73 WRC plus as a team going back to June 1st, by far the lowest, and they strike out a lot at 27.2%. The other lineup matchup related question I had for you for today is the Twins. They have the highest strikeout rate in the league. They do enough damage because they're fourth in barrels over plate appearances, but it's a 104 WRC plus to 240 average. You're not looking at this team and saying it's just impossible for uh, an SP4 or an SP5 to work through that lineup. So do you seek out teams like the Twins that strike out a lot but don't necessarily have a bad offense? They might be closer to a league average. I think this would also describe the Mariners to some extent. They're third in strikeout rate during this span and they're 10% better than league average, so it's a little more risky with them. But what do you do with teams like that where you know your chances of getting a lot of whiffs are actually very high? You know, I probably should have been paying more attention to the team strikeout rates, but the the stat that, you know, when we're doing these searches, the ones the one that I actually pay the I pay the most attention to even more than Wobo or WRC plus is ISO. Because that's where, you know, a start can really go wrong. You have a team that maybe is in the bottom third overall, but they've got an ISO that's like 180, 190, 200. Uh, and that's usually why they're down there is because they've got a high strikeout rate too. And I, I tend to avoid those teams when streaming. Uh, now, this time of year, I think you can parse that out a little and say, okay, you know, my, my ratios are kind of shot. <laughs> I don't need to worry maybe about that, that starter's ERA, but can that starter you know, even in four or five innings, get six or seven strikeouts. So I think that that's, that's a calculus that I need to be making more going forward in the leagues where strikeouts matter and ratios don't. But I guess my thinking has been, if you're facing a team that's, you know, an upper 100s, lower 200s ISO, no matter how many strikeouts per nine you're getting, you may not be going very many innings. Yeah, ISO is a good way to think about it. It's right on the same leaderboard over at Fangraphs, too. So if you're just using that for WRC Plus or K percentage, it's right there. You can just click on it and, and see. Um, sticking with that June 1st forward split, not surprisingly, Atlanta, the team to avoid, you would avoid them anyway. They have a 249 ISO since June 1st, 125 home runs. Uh, the next closest team in homers during that span, the Angels with 96. The Reds have 94. Houston's got 92, Texas has 91, but the top five teams by ISO during that span, Atlanta, the Angels, the Rangers, the Reds, 
and the Dodgers. Twins are right up there at six. Uh, Astros missing Jordan Alvarez for a stretch there. Not surprisingly near that spot at number seven. Flipping it upside down, though, this does reveal some of these teams that we've been trying to pick on a lot more. Dead last in ISO, going back to June 1st, are the Giants at 133, the Guardians at 139, the Marlins at 139, the Brewers at 142, the A's at 144, the Pirates at 144, the Royals at 147, the White Sox and Tigers at 148, the Nats at 154, the Rockies at 155, and you get to some surprises. Arizona, who the Diamondbacks have really been struggling, they're in a Terrible losing streak right now. They're at 157 for their ISO since June 1st. The Rays are at 160, and the Jays are at 160. That's where you start to get to these teams. You're like, whoa, how much do I want to lean into that? Because you you believe in the, the, the sum of the part, the individual pieces. You have to start believing in the sum of the parts. That's, that's how I would describe the Blue Jays. It just seems like it's only a matter of time before things start to click again for a lot of those Jays bats. Yep, that's the exact inner dialogue I have when I look at that leaderboard and I see the Jays much lower than I expect them to be. It's like, no, nah, I don't, I don't trust that one sixty or whatever number it is that's coming up. They're just close enough to you know being in the middle or or outside the top echelon that uh, I you know I would stay away. And I, I admit I grant certain teams kind of that luxury. The Yankees, who have like you said struggled for so much of the year during stretches. If I'm looking at a twenty last twenty eight days and they're kind of in the middle ground, it's like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid the Yankees. Uh, but yeah, the Blue Jays I've definitely given a lot of benefit of the doubt to. So I have to recuse myself from analysis uh, about Matthew Libertor, much as I have to excuse myself for any and all future analysis of Victor Robles. Might not be a problem since he doesn't have any sort of impact right now being on the IL. Uh, Matthew Libertor's next start comes against the A's on August 16th. That's at home. And then he's got a two-step the following week at Pittsburgh and then at Philly. Always comes back to the second one, the raining on the parade a little bit. In what types of leagues are you throwing Matthew Libertor with those matchups coming off of the best performance of his big league career? Well, I think I'm waiting for that Oakland start, which I realize is a, is a real opportunity missed potentially. But again, because the, the start against the Rays was such an outlier, uh, because, and before that start, Matthew Libertor was just in an avoided-at-all-costs category for me. I, I want to see it one more time, even if it's against a team that we pick on a lot. So, And then, that, you know, at Philadelphia, that's that's scary. And then I think we can issue the usual caveat of, well, if you can split the split the starts, um, you know, at least that first start, that looks pretty good for him if he does okay against Oakland. All right. I'm a little more aggressive uh, than you are with Libertor. I think people sort of understand that at this point. Definitely want to throw him against Oakland. I will use that as sort of the basis to whether or not I would actually want to throw him in a 12-team league with two road starts the following week. If he can build some momentum off that start against the Rays, I will continue to be excited about what he might be able to do here in these final two months of the season. I mentioned a couple teams shifting into six-man rotations. The Nationals are among them. I would say Josiah Gray and Mackenzie Gore are the most fantasy-relevant starters in that rotation. Gore, especially given his injury history, it makes all the sense in the world that they would handle him carefully, but they've got enough other guys who are going to probably approach or even top their previous career highs and in innings, so I understand exactly why the Nationals are doing it. Uh, 
I don't really like any of the other starters out of Corbin and John Doan and Jake Irvin, Trevor Williams. I'm curious to know what you make of Josiah Gray's season. It's been some highs and lows. The ERA at 369, easily the best of the three seasons he's been in the big leagues. The whip is still bad, though, at 144. The K rate is sort of okay, not great. 110 strikeouts now and 126 and two-thirds innings. And he's got both a walks and homers problem. The good news is the home run problem was worse last year. He has fixed some of it. But is this the best version of Josiah Gray we're going to get? Or do you see reasons to believe that he can whittle away even more at those ratios? Yeah, this in terms of ERA, it could be a career year for Gray. But I, I am going to differ slightly in interpretation because uh, you're, you're, you know, you're saying that he still has a home run problem. And so he's, he's actually cut the home runs per nine by more than half, which mm-hmm. is pretty incredible. But again, when you're giving up 2.3 per nine, like he did in 2022, <laughs> there's a lot of room to, to cut that in half. But, you know, in, in the, you know, environment, you know, current environment of baseball. I mean, I know it's not the most Homer happy uh, of seasons that we've seen, but you know, if you look at the last, you know, several years combined, I mean, a 1.14 home runs per nine is not terrible. Uh, it's, it's not ideal, but it's, it's, I wouldn't characterize that as a home run problem. He has uh, increased the ground ball rate. I'm going to check now. Cause I think he's cut the, the barrels way back. No, he he's cut it just a little bit, but, Better to be 8.0% uh, barrel rate than in double digits where he was the first two seasons. So he's clearly making progress. And that, for me, was always the the biggest concern that I had about Josiah Gray. So uh, he's gone from avoid at all costs to being somebody because the home runs are not the extreme problem that they were, that you, you could use him in selected situations. And that's something I couldn't have said about him last year. Yeah, maybe still just a streamer for 15-team leagues. Occasionally, the two start weeks could put him onto the radar in some more shallow formats than that. But the Nationals are off each of the next two Mondays. So with the six-man rotation, they will not have any two start weeks in that group. So that's the the cost of, of that adjustment for us in weekly formats. Uh, a rehab assignment to follow up on. I haven't thought a lot about John Means this season, Al, but he has uh, started his rehab assignment through two scoreless innings last time out. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on the 3-0 show with with Walker Bueller, and I'm curious what your expectations are for Means once he's fully stretched out again. Do you think he can claim a spot in that Orioles rotation, and, and what types of leagues do you think he could make an impact down the stretch? I think he could because I, I don't know that Cole Irvin has an absolute lock on that six starter spot. So I, I would think that that would be a way that they could get means in there. But, uh, you know, you, you've um, recused yourself from Matthew Levator analysis. I think I need to recuse myself from anything involving Tyler Wells. <laughs> I'm highly invested in him coming back and rejoining the rotation. And uh, it, there's not, I don't see how there's going to be room for both means and Wells unless I guess unless somebody gets hurt. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I would like to think that Wells is is ahead in the pecking order, but I, may, I think there, there's a lot of question marks there about how that's going to turn out the next few weeks. Yeah, I think there's still something to be determined for the postseason. If you're trying to say who are the, Nat- or who are the Orioles' four best starters right now, Kyle Bradish easily gets one of those spots. 
Jack Flaherty should get one of those spots. And then you want to give one to Grayson Rodriguez because the the talent is off the charts and long term. He's the starter that I think most people think will be their best best guy, their their true ace. But then you could kind of see a case for for means to squeeze in there if Wells gets back to the way he was pitching before the downturn that caused the Orioles to back off him for a bit and send him down to double A, then he certainly could claim a spot in that top four. But I just don't know what August and September are going to bring for a guy like Tyler Wells. I love that they use him like a regular starter. I had him in a lot of deep leagues this year and have been really happy with the results. I'm nervous about what it's going to look like when he comes back, but they may have the luxury because of Means' return and because of some other success in this group of starters to use Wells as a multi-inning reliever again. They could go back mm-hmm. to using him as a, a bulk guy. They could use him one time through the order and have him piggyback behind a starter that might go a little short. And that might be the most effective thing they can do with their pitching unit. So that's where I have some hesitation with Tyler Wells. And I think the other thing with, with means is just like, we didn't really get a good look at him with the new dimensions at or at Camden Yards. So the problems he had, also another guy with home run problems, those should be at least somewhat reduced at home. And that makes him a higher floor guy for me upon return. Uh, but I still think it's probably more of a 15-team profile for Means. I think it's going to be a streaming situation in more shallow formats where he becomes very matchup dependent. And I'm not sure I'm not sure where, where the K rate's going to go. I think that's part of my hesitation, too. If I, if I was convinced that John Means was going to come back and miss bats right away, I'd be more aggressive with trying to stash him in like a 12-team league. Instead, I'm taking more of a wait-and-see approach because we've seen lower K rates in 2021 and before he got hurt in 2022, he was in that lower 20% range. I think that's probably where his true talent level lies. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, just as you can make an argument that Wells has had the experience pitching out of the bullpen. And so that just might be a natural place to ease him back in. It's also a natural place to ease means back in, too. So I just this could go any number of ways. And maybe they both wind up losing out on on rotation spots. And and looking at it from a postseason preparation perspective, that does make some sense because that gives them a ton of depth in the in the bullpen and they've they've got a pretty decent starting uh, contingent right now so uh yeah i don't know i just have to uh i wish there was a way to put up a, a shrug emoji up on the screen here cuz uh, <laughs> that's that's my conclusion no it's a watch list situation at the very least for john means in a lot of leagues let's move on to a few bats a couple of recent promotions lawrence butler gets the call from the a's and jp martinez is coming up for Friday's series opener between the Rangers and the Giants. We've been wondering if the Rangers might turn to Evan Carter at some point and, and just lean into some of their prospects for a little bit of bottom-of-the-order help in the outfield. Martinez getting that chance, putting together a really nice season at AAA. He's 27 years old, so that's going to probably temper some of the enthusiasm. But if you're just looking for biggest all-around Roto impact out of both Martinez and Butler, who do you actually prefer at this point? Well, I made what what to me sort of felt like the bold move in the waiver column saying that I think Martinez uh, actually, I, I don't know that it's necessarily the high percentage move, but I think that, I think he may have the higher fantasy ceiling right now because I think that 
the Rangers would at least, it would behoove them to maybe give him a shot at replacing, um, replacing Grossman against uh, right-handed starters. Uh, Cause just his splits against righties have been pretty atrocious. Uh, and there's just a, you know, there's a lot of speed there. So even if it was a, you know, three, four start a week assignment for Martinez, he could, he could be helpful with stolen bases. Whereas with Butler, he was kind of close to league average, both at double A and triple A. He's going to a, a tough park. Won't necessarily have be in a great situation for run production. So I, I feel like his ceiling for redraft this year is 15 teams and, uh, you know, just might his, his biggest, um, his biggest asset for fantasy just might be, you know, co- compiling uh, counting stats. Cause I think Butler will play a lot, but, uh, I'm not super optimistic that he's going to help a lot in any particular category. I think I can get on board with Martinez as the, the higher impact short-term pickup, even though I would, you know, in the keeper or dynasty league, be more inclined to prefer Lawrence Butler, in part because the quality of contact Martinez was making was really good. Thirty-five point seven percent hard hit rate at Triple A this year. Cut the K rate from thirty-one point seven percent down to twenty-four percent. He's drawn walks for years now in the upper levels of the Rangers system. You mentioned the possible platoon role with Robbie Grossman, J.P. Martinez as a left-handed hitter. He would be on the big side of platoon, so there's reason to believe this could definitely work. And he's 33 for 37 as a base dealer with a dozen homers as well. So there's some pop, there's speed, there's a pretty good eye at the plate, and seemingly improving contact skills too. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic this actually will be a nice productive run for J.P. Martinez. As for Butler, the numbers were pretty good at AA. He showed power, showed speed, 41.8% hard hit rate during his brief time at AAA Las Vegas, I was thinking about this more in the, the broader context of these Oakland position players, because now you've got Butler, Zach Galoff, who's been red hot, and Jordan Diaz, who's been kind of up and down on the roster throughout the season, Tyler, Stroderstrom, Tyler Soderstrom, who got promoted recently, Esteri Ruiz, who's now healthy again in center field, you know, Shea Langeliers, who debuted last year and has been behind the plate a lot. I don't think you'd necessarily have to include J.J. Blade and Brent Rooker as part of that group because they're a little older. You could talk about them if you want to. And you've also got Daryl Hernais playing really well at AAA, someone that could play shortstop and join this group. Who do you like out of that, that roster that the A's have put together, that young core? I mean, who do you think will actually be fantasy relevant the furthest into the future? I think there's maybe like one low-hanging fruit guy of the bunch, and then there's a few others that are intriguing but it's so hard to tell if they're more than more than regulars if they're more than just guys that are going to play a lot and pile up good stats simply because they have a job well i'm curious who the low-hanging fruit option is because i see possibility with with pretty much all these guys but nobody that really excites me that much uh, I, I want to be more interested in ruiz than i am but i just i that's always the thing with um players who uh, don't have a lot of power, but have the ability to steal a lot of bases is just, are they going to get on base enough? Ruiz has surprised me this year. I didn't think he would get this many steals. I didn't think he would get this much playing time. Uh, but I, I do think his ceiling is, is a lot more limited than pretty much anybody else on, on the list here. Diaz is somebody I think I've kind of undersold this year. And some of that had to do with, as you said, him, not really sticking in a regular role, but now he's he's playing pretty close to every day. 
but uh, makes a lot of contact, has some pop. Uh, so I, I kind of like him. And Soderstrom, he's just, he's very young. So the results haven't been good so far, but I could see next year or maybe the year after that he becomes a, a much better hitter at the major league level. And I think he's got the highest, uh, probably the the highest ceiling of anybody here. And then Geloff has been really, uh, you know, surprisingly uh, potent so far, uh, showing a lot of power. Uh, again, I don't know if that's something that's going to last past uh, the the small sample that we've seen so far, but it definitely has me intrigued. Yeah, I think Soderstrom was the guy that I thought was the low-hanging fruit just because the age-to-level production, the power he showed at AAA, uh, expectations from the, the scouting community are just a little higher with him than they are with the rest of this group, whereas a lot of these guys are sort of fringy top 100 prospects on the list. Soderstrom was inside most top 100s that I recall seeing. Galoff, I think, is the guy that I have come to I'm having a difficult time in a, in a keeper league, including him in a trade as a possible secondary piece, because I keep looking at the underlying contact numbers and saying, yeah, the strikeout rate's a little high and it's been high since double A back in 2022, but he's making a lot of hard contact. It was a 42.5% hard hit rate at triple A this year, 45.6% so far in the big leagues. He's lifting the ball enough to do damage. He's showing some speed. Uh, and I think he can play a couple of infield spots well enough where even if we don't know where exactly he fits in defensively, he fits in somewhere. And I think you could look at Jordan Diaz and say, he plays a few spots too, but he might not be as good of a defender as Zach Galoff at those. So you start to you start to kind of have a, a real-life value component to figuring out how they in the organization might prioritize this group of players. So I, I think it's Soderstrom who I like the most long-term Geloff probably second, and then it's wide open after that. I think this is a much more intriguing group of position players, though, than what the A's started this season with. So you can sort of see the rebuild taking some shape, at least on the position player side uh, in Oakland. Let's get to a few more bats. A couple catchers among the most added players at the position this week, Mitch Garver and Gary Sanchez. I was curious if you're choosing between those two, more likely in a single catcher league than in a two catcher league. I think they're pretty well rostered in most two catcher leagues. Who do you prefer for the rest of this season? Uh, I would say Garver because I think they have very similar uh, capability for for hitting home runs. But uh, Gary Sanchez just has no batting average upside whatsoever. And I don't know that Garver's that much better. But I you know I would certainly trust him more to. Uh, to not completely uh, tank the the team for average. So I give Garver, give Garver a slight edge, but I didn't write about either one of them this week. I've written about them in past weeks, but um, I mentioned uh, Melendez before, uh, even though he's not catching now, still catcher eligible uh, and Fermin, but the number one Roto catcher since the all-star break, any guesses? Freddie Fermin. He is sixth. Melendez oh. is fifth. <laughs> I thought it was going to be Freddie because every time I've looked at the uh, free agent list on CBS for like the last 30 days, he's one of those players that shoots up to the top of the list. So I figured I had that one. Well, I, when I looked at Melendez, I thought that this is how I wind up doing the doing the sort. When I looked at Melendez's numbers since All-Star break, I'm like, he's got to be the number one catcher. He's fifth. <laughs> and for mm. means right behind him. So number one, and with a 9% roster rate on CBS, same as for mean, by the way, it's Ryan Jeffers. Oh, yeah. He's playing a bit more, which yeah. is tricky because 
So it's another crossover from the Athletic Baseball Show. We're talking about the Central Divisions today. The Twins have so much swing and miss in that lineup, as we were discussing earlier on this show. But Jeffers has always shown this ability to do damage. Double-digit barrel rates every single year he's been in the big leagues. I was a little bit surprised when they brought Christian Vasquez in because I thought Jeffers was good enough to be a starter. I just didn't think I didn't think Christian Vasquez filled a need. I thought they could sign a veteran backup and let Jeffers catch 100-plus games this year. Maybe they're making that switch now, but a 285-381-500 line now for the season. It's 219 plate appearances, but that's like a 20-home run catcher with a good batting average. Despite yeah. a 30% K rate, I think that's the the one thing that makes you worry about the batting average is there's always been swing and miss, and there's not really a lot of signs that that's going to go away for Jeffers. But I think he belongs in the conversation with these two players, with Garver, you know, former teammate, and with Gary Sanchez. And I think the thing that separates Garver and Sanchez for me, it's the Rangers versus the Padres. The Rangers have a fantastic lineup. I think you're just going to get better counting stats from Mitch Garver along the way. Yeah, it's a, that's an excellent point. Yeah, it def- definitely works in his favor. So uh, that just uh, makes me feel even better about Garver. The other thing with Gary Sanchez, Ethan Salas might just be in the big leagues before the end of the season. I'm being facetious. He's very, very, very young, but he's already at high A, which I'm starting to think we're going to see Ethan Salas in 2024, which is just absurd for a teenage catcher. But here we are. I was curious if you have any interest in Ramon Laureano. He's getting a fresh start in Cleveland. I thought this season was going to be good for Laureano. I think he was my most rostered player coming out of draft season. So, yeah, bad call. That happens sometimes with your your later available players. They're easy to get. You end up with five, six, seven shares of them, and it doesn't work out. He ended up on a better team, but it's only a slightly better team. And even that, like with all the changes in Oakland, you might argue that the supporting cast top to bottom for the A's helps provide better counting stats than the supporting cast in Cleveland. Nevertheless, there's power, there's speed. Can Ramon Laureano live up to his rest of season projections, which point him to like a 240 average, some power, some speed, and, and enough to you know make a dent, I think, in 15-team leagues if it comes true. But are you buying it? I think, you know, the projections that you're talking about, I think for the, for the most part, uh, yeah, the move to Cleveland, I think in terms of lineup support, it's a pretty lateral move, but it's definitely uh, an upgrade in terms of the park. So probably see a little bit more power there. But I, you know, I was high on Loriano too back in March, and I thought he'd be one of the players that really benefited benefited hugely from the uh, the rules impacting stolen bases. And uh, he's played sixty seven games. He has nine steals, so uh, that's a a little bit of a, a higher rate than he's had the last couple of years, but nothing really exciting. So. I kind of put him in, in a way in the the Lawrence Butler category. Like I think he can, he can give you a little bit of power, a little bit of speed, but not enough to really move the needle. So I, at this point, I'm looking at Loriano as 15 team filler. And depending on how the playing time shakes out, maybe somebody who's on the bench more often than not. Fair enough. How would you compare him to Davis Schneider, who may be more than just a cool, a cool story. I almost called him a schnorty because of the name Schneider. <laughs> I'm tired. I've had I've been drinking coffee all day, and I'm still tired. And it's almost three o'clock in the afternoon, which is not uh, not a good sign for how my weekend might go. But uh, the thing about Schneider that really caught me by surprise was that he showed good plate skills at AAA. He was really going to have age appropriate to be at AAA this year. There was power. There was speed. 
He's been a pretty efficient base dealer going all the way back to high A to start last season. And the underlying contact numbers have been good, both at AAA, 42.5% hard hit rate. Even in the big leagues right now, 33% not terrible. It's at least good enough to hang on the roster, especially when you have a good eye at the plate. Yeah, I mean, so he had that great series against the Red Sox to make his debut, and then he went O for the Guardians, Mm. the fouling series. And I think that's kind of important because uh, Kevin Kiermaier, could be back, I think, in about a week or so, not not too long. And uh, Whit Merrifield's been out in the in the outfield in uh, Kiermaier's absence, and so you, you get the you know moving parts shifting. And if uh, Merrifield gets back in the infield, I don't know where Schneider plays, at least not as a regular. And so if he you know comes out of this week, let's say he has another rough series heading into next week, maybe he's back to Buffalo. Maybe he's, uh, you know, or if nothing else starting two times a week. So I think it's really important to see how Schneider does this weekend because I, the, the Blue Jays will have some decisions to make when Kiermaier comes back. Yeah. It might be under the microscope as far as what that role is going to look like in the next few weeks. But I just, I didn't expect to see upper level performances in the minor leagues quite as good as what Davis Schneider had put together, given how little I feel like I heard about him prior to his arrival in the big leagues. For really deep leagues, Alfonso Rivas, I noticed, is playing a lot in Pittsburgh right now. He was hitting a ton in El Paso. Everyone hits in El Paso. It's part of the PCL, high altitude, all that. But there is a lot of playing time here, and I'm just wondering if he's going to actually exceed expectations by virtue of just good counting stats. Barrel rate's up so far this season. We'll see if it sticks. It's a very, very small sample size. I just thought it was kind of intriguing since he's bounced around between a few orgs and has never really had a long run of playing time. We saw 287 plate appearances for the Cubs last year, only a 307 slug. So this is probably more of a mono league sort of play, but it just surprised me to see how much Rivas was getting in the mix for a Pirates team that's been shuttling infielders up and down in that roster all season long. Well, that was the thing I was going to point out if you didn't, that even when somebody uh, comes up and gets some regular playing time, makes an impact, it seems like as often as not, that player two weeks later is on the bench or back in AAA. So it's been sort of frustrating that it just seems like the Pirates this season have just been throwing everything at the wall to see what might work and, and not really giving a lot of players very much of a chance. I mean, it seems like there's maybe three or four players in that lineup that really have been constants. So I don't know if Rivas is going to be one of them. And I remember it's, it's like deja vu DVR because this time last year, Rivas was playing a lot for the Cubs and you were, I, I recall you were, you were pretty interested in him. And I just thought, well, this is, you know, kind of a batting average only first baseman. And I'm, I'm not sure I see the appeal. So I haven't really, I think I've not really moved off of that spot, but you know, we'll see. We'll see if he gets the playing time in Pittsburgh. And if that, like you said, the increased power, if that translates uh, to to PNC Park, then uh, you know I, I definitely need to reevaluate. Yeah, for anything beyond a mono league, keep an eye on the hard hit rate. See where that goes with more playing time. If that starts tracking towards the 40% range like it was at during his time at AAA, that might be your signal that deep mixed league roster ship is actually possible. Until then... Take a wait-and-see approach. Uh, Two-star pitchers and streamers. I didn't do as much with this group on the rundown this week because it's kind of gridlock out there. I was looking all over the place trying to find unrostered starters that that could be pretty useful. Dakota Hudson 
is a somewhat low-rostered pitcher who's got two home starts for the Cardinals, home against the A's, home against the Mets. That might be a go if you're chasing bulk. It's always scary because Dakota Hudson doesn't miss a lot of bats, but that first matchup is just enticing enough for me to at least think twice about it in leagues where he's available. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, if you're looking in deeper leagues than Hudson, maybe, I, I think he's really risky. But if, again, you're just going for bulk. I think he's one of your better options. Uh, J.P. Sears uh, at St. Louis versus Baltimore. Not great matchups, but I, I think he's, you know, he's decent. So, uh, and you mentioned Hancock before. Uh, but um, I, I think if you're going a little bit shallower, if you're looking 12-team leagues, I like Brady Singer. We talked about him, I think, last week. Mm-hmm. He's got uh, two starts this coming week. He's got the Mariners at home. Cubs uh, at Wrigley, which is, I mean, the Cubs, again, if you do kind of the shorter range sort, the Cubs have been one of the best offensive teams the last several weeks. So I don't know how scary we should necessarily uh, make that. But um, but I think, you know, Singer's pitched so well for the last, really last couple of months that I think I would I would chance it with him. And uh, I know there was one other, but I'm, I'm absolutely blanking on it right now. Also, well, my guy Wade Miley has terrible matchups at the Dodgers <laughs> at Texas. So I think even I have to avoid Wade Miley. And I guess one other thing that I should add to DVR is that um, Graham Ashcraft has the, the first start of the week for the Reds. It's a five game week. Uh, so they've got the two game series against Cleveland and Ashcraft's got that Tuesday start. Uh, so if they stay with a four-man rotation, he would get the Sunday start. But that's also the projected return date for Hunter Green. But Hunter Green had a rehab start on Thursday night that looked like it didn't go very well. And I'm curious to see if I can find any reports about if that's altering their plans, if there's any concern there about Hunter Green, or if that's just you know one of those kind of random rehab start lines that I shouldn't pay any attention to. The last I saw, they were planning on giving him two more rehab starts before bringing him back. So I think he's more than a week away still, but getting close, which is certainly good news. If you've been stashing Hunter Green on the IL. We talked about streaming against the Twins earlier. Reese Olsen just pitched really well against them this week. Six scoreless, eight Ks. Would you try to go back to that well in some shallow leagues where Olsen might be available? Yeah, no, I definitely would. Uh, I like him. I've been actually kind of, yeah, not kind of stashing him in my 12-teamer because he did go through a little bit of a rough patch, but I didn't want to drop him because I figured he was capable of that kind of start that he had on uh, on Thursday. So I like that call. I like that call a lot. And the pitcher that I was blanking on a moment ago that has now returned to me is uh, Nick Pavetta. And he's still out there in some 12-teamers. And he's his matchups are pretty decent. He's got the Nationals and the Yankees on the road. Those venues aren't great. If this was classic Nick Pavetta with the home run issue, that'd be really scary. But I think I'm gonna I think I'm going to trust him with those starts. Yeah, I think the the other name that has come up on a few of our episodes, Xavier Curry, gets an opportunity against the Tigers. It's a home start. I think if I'm chasing innings in a deeper league, I think Curry is actually someone who's at least on my bid list this weekend uh, just because I, I, I just don't have a lot of respect for the Tigers lineup right now. I love what Riley Green's doing. I know there's a few other success stories mixed in there, but there's not a lot of depth. I think you can actually get away with throwing some lower end or unproven starters against them and live to tell the tale. Uh, If you picked up Cole Reagans last week, or if he's still available in your league, would you throw him on the road at Wrigley for his lone start during the upcoming week? The good news would be if you don't use him or if you pick him up and stash him at Oakland is the matchup that he has the following week. So I'm curious what you're doing with Reagans. 
Uh, I do have him in a 15-teamer, and I think that's... I'm probably going to start him, but I have to look and see what my options are. It's not a slam dunk because of that matchup, but uh, I'm definitely not automatically benching him either. He's just been too good in those first three starts. Yeah, yeah. I think the the other guy I'm still looking at, I think I, I praised Luis Medina on this show last week for improved control, and he rewarded me by walking five and going three in the third against the Giants last time out. Another turn this weekend, hopefully an opportunity for him to turn it back around. But he's got another good matchup coming up next week. Actually, a tough matchup coming up next week, home against the Orioles before an easy matchup the following week at home against the Royals. So I'm at the point in the season, Al, where I'm looking two weeks down the road for a lot of potential pickups just because there are so few pitchers available in a lot of the deeper mixed league formats that we play in. Um, did have one other Tigers pitcher I want to talk about before we go. Bo Brisky picked up a two-inning save on Thursday against the Twins. So he's pitching well so far this year. All but one of his appearances have been out of the bullpen this year. 10 Ks against one walk. It's a 208 ERA, .92 whip so far. The way they're using him doesn't necessarily point to traditional closer as the immediate opportunity, but two saves now in the last three appearances for Brisky. Yeah, and his profile doesn't scream closer, but I think that could be a wide open situation because um, Alex Lang's profile also with all the walks doesn't really scream uh, closer or at least not a reliable one. So it's it's the time of season where I think the the Tigers probably want to see what they can get from Brisky and maybe maybe some other relievers too. Maybe they, they blow that wide open uh, and, and look ahead to 2024. So as somebody who's got Lang in a few leagues, I definitely need to be looking for reinforcements and probably will at least consider Brisky in the mix this weekend in terms of uh, trying to look for some potential saves rest of season. Yeah, Brisky, I think, is a good deep league target right now. Eno's pitching model has him with four above average pitches, a total of a 116 stuff plus, a 111 location plus, and a 115 pitching plus number. It could work really well out of the bullpen, especially. Uh, maybe we'll see him get a chance to start again at some point, though, too. If they keep using him for 30 pitches at a time, all it takes is a couple of appearances, and he could suddenly go four or five innings and, and change things that way. But I do like him a bit as a reliever. And I think if you want to buy into the Tigers as a younger team on the rise, I think that's very reasonable. He could emerge, Brisky could emerge to be a closer for them by this time next year. A, a regular closer, that is, even though he might not have that role right now. I think he's doing enough to earn a look in deeper leagues where saves are probably clustered pretty close together at this point in the season. That is going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. If you've got a question for a future episode, you can drop us a note via Gmail, ratesandbarrels at gmail.com. That's the correct email address on Twitter. Al's at almailcurebb. I am at Derek Van Riper. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, this is a good time to get one especially with fantasy football just around the corner, Premier League season now underway, $2 a month gets you in the door for the first year at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. That's going to do it for this episode of rates and barrels. We are back with you on Monday. <laughs>